And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, well today is March 31st. 90th day of the year. 275 days remain to the year's over with. And of course... As always, based on your request, I'm going to list the holidays and observances on this date. This is National Epiphanies Day. Uh, You celebrate it with Breckenridge Bourbon Whiskey. Anesthesia Tech Day. Cesar Chavez Day. Celebrating the life and legacy of this iconic hero. Crayola Crayon Day. Everybody in Congress is going to be using, openly using their crayons. Dance Marathon Day. Eiffel Tower Day. International Hug Medievalist Day. National Bunsen Burner Day. A lot of folks get hot about that. National Clams on the Half Shell Day. Uh, National Farm Workers Day. National Prom Day. National She's Funny That Way Day. Who comes up with these things? National Tater Day. She's Funny That Way Day. Terry's Day. Transfer Day. For the price of a New York penthouse, the U.S. bought the Virgin Islands. When they got there, didn't find a one. Transgender Day of Visibility. Oh, please. And World Backup Day. Which is an important one, because what would you do if you lost everything on your computer? You might have to actually do some work. Well. Let's see. In 307, after divorcing his wife, Minervina... Constantine Marys Fasta, daughter of the retired Roman Emperor Maximian. 1146, Bernard de Clairvaux preaches his famous sermon on a field in Vézelay, urging the necessity of a second crusade. Louis VII is present, and he gets excited and joins the crusade. 1492, Queen Isabel of Castile issues the Alhambra decree, ordering her 150,000 Jewish and Muslim subjects to Convert to Christianity or face expulsion. 1521, Ferdinand Magellan and 50 men come ashore in present day uh, Namasawa to participate in the first Catholic Mass in the Philippines. You know, we've, we've made entirely too much out of uh, religion, and it's left a, led to a lot of death and destruction. 1657, the Long Parliament presents the humble petition and advice offering Oliver Cromwell the British throne, which he eventually declines. 1717, a sermon on the nature of the kingdom of Christ by Benjamin Headley, the Bishop of Bangor, preached in the presence of King George I of Great Britain, provokes the Bangorian controversy. Now, for those that are not familiar with it, it was a theological argument within the Church of England and the early 18th century with strong political overtones. The origins of this controversy lay in the 1716 posthumous publication of George Hickey's Constitution of the Catholic Church and the nature and consequence of schism. In it, Hicks, as Bishop of Thetford, on behalf of the minority non-jura faction had broken away from the Church of England after the Glorious Revolution, excommunicated all but the non-jura churchmen. Benjamin Hoadley, the Bishop of Bangor, wrote a reply. Well, this controversy began very visibly and vocally when Audley delivered his sermon, March 31st, 1717. Um, His text was uh, John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. And from that, Audley deduced, supposedly at the request of the king himself, that there was no biblical justification for any church government of any sort. He identified the church with the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, none of this world, and Christ hadn't delegated his authority to any representatives. So, uh, you know, the, the, 
the silliness that comes out of some of these religious pronouncements just boggles the mind. 1761, the 1761 Lisbon earthquake strikes off the Iberian Peninsula with an estimated magnitude of 8.5. Six years after another quake destroyed the city. 1774, American Revolution. The Kingdom of Great Britain orders the Port of Boston, Massachusetts, closed pursuant to the Boston Port Act. 1814, the Sixth Coalition occupies Paris after Napoleon's Grand Army capitulates. 1854, Commodore Matthew Perry signs a convention of Kanagawa with the Tokugawa shogunate, opening the ports of Shimoda and Akadate to American trade. 1885, the U.K. establishes the Bakunan Land Protectorate. Bekuana Land Protectorate. Good Lord. 1889, the Eiffel Tower is officially opened. 1899, Malolos, capital of the First Philippine Republic, is captured by American forces. 1901, Rysalka by Antonin Dvorak, Premier's National Opera House in Prague. 1905, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany declares his support for Moroccan independence in Tangier, beginning the First Moroccan Crisis. 1906, the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the U.S., later the National Collegiate Athletic Association, NCAA, is established to set rules for college sports in the U.S. 1909, Serbia formally withdraws its opposition to Austro-Hungary and actions in the Bosnian crisis. 1913, the Vienna Concert Society noted during a performance of modernist music by Arnold Schoenberg, Albenberg, uh, Alexander von Zemlinsky, and Anton von Webern, causing a uh, premature end of the concert due to violence. This concert became known as the Scandal Concert. 1917, according to the terms of the Treaty of the Danish West Indies, the islands became American possessions. 1918, Massacre of Ethnic uh, is committed by Allied Armed Forces groups of uh, Armenian Revolutionary Federation and Bolsheviks. Nearly 12,000 Azerbaijani Muslims are killed. 1918, Daylight Savings Time goes into effect in the U.S. for the first time. Allegedly, it was to support the war. 1921, the Royal Australian Air Force is formed. 1930, the Motion Picture Production Code is instituted, imposing strict guidelines on the treatment of sex, crime, religion, and violence in films in the U.S., and it stayed in effect for the next 38 years. In actuality, you had a group of uh, prominent folks in the movie industry who wanted control, and they wanted their rules and their views uh, to, be, to be at the core of films. 1931, an earthquake in Nicaragua destroys Managua, kills 2,000. 1931, a transcontinental and uh, western airline uh, airliner crashes near Bazaar, Kansas, killing eight, including University of Notre Dame head football coach Newt Rockney. 1933, the Civilian Conservation Corps is established with the mission of relieving rampant unemployment in the U.S. They created make-work jobs. 1939, events preceding World War II in Europe. Prime Minister Chamberlain pledges British military support to the Second Polish Republic in the event of an invasion by Nazi Germany. 1942, World War II. Japanese forces invade Christmas Island, which was then a British possession. 1945, World War II. A defecting German pilot delivers a measurement in the 262A1, the world's first operational jet-powered fighter aircraft, to the Americans. That was the very first one to fall into Allied hands. Had the Germans got that into production even two years sooner, they might have won the war. 1949. The Dominion of Newfoundland joins a Canadian uh, confederation, becomes the 10th province of Canada. 1951. Remington Rand delivers the first UNIVAC-1 computer to the United States Census Bureau. 1957. Elections to the Territorial Assembly of the French colony Upper Volta are held. 
after the elections, the PDU and the MDV former government. In the Canadian federal election, the progressive conservatives led by John Diefenbacher won the largest percentage of seats in Canadian history with 208 out of 265. Uh, 1959, the 14th Dalai Lama crosses the border into India and is granted political asylum. 1964, Brazilian General Olimpio Mauro Filho orders his troops to move forward uh, towards Rio de Janeiro, beginning the coup d'etat and 21 years of military dictatorship. 1966, Soviet Union launches Lunar 10, which later becomes the first space probe to enter orbit around the moon. Also in 1966, the Labor Party under Harold Wilson wins the 1966 United Kingdom general election. 1968, American President Lyndon I'm Gonna Be King Johnson speaks to the nation of steps to limit the war in Vietnam in a television address. At the conclusion of that speech, he announced, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. In other words, put in plain English, I quit. 1970, Explorer 1 re-enters the Earth's atmosphere after 12 years in orbit. 1980, the Chicago, Rock Island, Pacific Railroad operates its final train after being ordered to liquidate its assets because of bankruptcy and the debts owed to creditors. 1986, Mexicana de Aviación Flight uh, 940 crashes into the Sierra Madre Oriental Mountain Range near the Mexican town of uh, Maravatio. Killing 167. 1990, about 200,000 protesters take to the streets of London to protest against the newly introduced poll tax. 1991, Georgian independence referendum. Nearly 99% of the voters support the country's independence from the Soviet Union. 1991, the Warsaw Pact formally disbands. 1992, USS Missouri, the last active U.S. Navy battleship, is decommissioned in Long Beach, California. 1992, the Treaty of Federation is signed in Moscow. 1993, the Macau Basic Law is adopted by the English National People's Congress in China to take effect uh, December 20, 1999. Resumption by China of the exercise of sovereignty over Macau also took place. In 1995, Selena is murdered by her fan club president, Yolanda Saldivar, at the Days Inn in Corpus Christi, Texas. 1995, Targum, uh, Tarum Flight 371 and Airbus A310 crashes near Belotesti, Romania, killing all 60 on board. 1998, Netscape releases Mozilla source code under an open source license. 2004, Iraq War in Anbar Province. In Fallujah, uh, Iraq, four American mili- uh, private military contractors working for Blackwater USA are killed after being ambushed. 2016, NASA uh, astronaut Scott Kelly and Roscomos um, cosmonaut Mikhail Kornico returned to Earth after a year-long mission at the International Space Station. 2018 started the 2018 Armenian Revolution. Well, there have been uh, quite a number of... um, And let's see. There have been um, quite a number of um, wars and revolutions and what have you in the last, I don't know, 30 years. And it's only going to get worse. We were also talking in yesterday's show about... um, The suppressed history and uh, Lewis and Clark's expedition. You know, Clark had been a rising military star when uh, he basically retired. Clean, poor health. After six years of military, Lewis was promoted to record captain, which was unheard of. The um, that's about one. No, I did it in a little less than that. A year later, 
uh, he was invited by Thomas Jefferson, the newly elected president, to be his private secretary. And after convincing Congress, Jefferson's plan for exploring the West was set in motion, and Lewis was um, selected to lead it. And he hunted down Clark and wrote him a letter and promised him to be uh, he'd be co-captain. This would be an adventure and a chance to be one of the first to uh, see the Pacific Ocean. In Clark's case, this venturing into the unknown with one of his friends, getting paid to do it, was a remedy for a man who had abandoned military life. After weeks passed in with no response, Lewis is ready to move on. He finally received news that Clark would actually be joining the party. So the newly created Corps of Discovery was setting off on a mission as important in its time as the moon launch was in our time. And it was much the same because they were going into the unknown. <coughs> Excuse me. You know what brought that on. Well, the first entry in the journal that was kept about the, the uh, core discovery was dated August 31st, 1903. It said, left Pittsburgh this day at 11 o'clock with a party of 11 hands, seven of which are soldiers, a pilot, and three young men on trial there. Having prepared, prepared to go with me. <coughs> Good Lord. Uh, throughout the voyage. They were on a 55-foot-long keel boat. Now, the boat was narrow and fast, designed to move people swiftly upriver. And almost immediately, Lewis was confronted with scientific curiosities. And Big Bone Lick in Kentucky... He helped assist Dr. William Goforth uh, excavate fossil remains of a mastodon. After five days spent studying and cataloging that find, Lewis sent his first shipment of specimens back to President Jefferson. <coughs> now, Lewis was aware of the fact that uh, Jefferson was an avid mastodon bone collector. He didn't think they were extinct. He thought that they'd be found wandering around the, the American continent. And so impressed with the revolutionary forefathers, they went so far as proclaiming the mighty Mastodon as America's national symbol. December 1803, Clark took the responsibility of training the men who had volunteered to go to the Pacific. They had a camp near present-day... Uh, Hartford, Illinois, and there he began the task of building a trail-fit team, and it was a challenge considering most of the men had never met one another. Clark taught them how to build forts, how to logs, to march in formation, use their weapons effectively. And the dangers they expected to find in the unexplored west were uh, numerous, so they prepared for every possible scenario. 1804, Lewis attended the, test, the ceremony in which the uh, Upper Louisiana Territory was transferred to the U.S. In the most awesome real estate deal in history, the U.S. took control of a vast territory covering 828,000 square miles, encompassing present-day Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, parts of Minnesota west of the Mississippi River, most of North Dakota, nearly all of South Dakota, South, um, northeastern New Mexico, portions of Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, east of the Continental Divide, and uh, Louisiana, west of the Mississippi River, including the city of New Orleans and parts of the Canadian provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. In May of 1804, Clark, the newly um, formed Corps of Discovery, and Lewis met at uh, St. Charles, Missouri. This assembled party uh, consisted of 45, included 27 unmarried soldiers, a French interpreter, Captain Lewis's uh, dog, a seaman, and another group of soldiers who had accompanied him to uh, Mandan country during the first winter of the expedition. Even French boatmen were recruited to help manage the boats, which were filled with supplies. Now, the expedition's first few months were a rough trial. As the group traveled up the Missouri River, they were beset with injuries, bitten by insects, beaten down by persistent heat, 
In August uh, 1804, the Corps of Discovery lost a man to appendicitis. Fortunately, it uh, turned out to be uh, the only casualty of the, the mission. Along their path, they came across huge logs and trees that bore witness to the storms and currents of the air, area. Made parts of the journey difficult as these uh, floating obstacles would damage and sink the boats. And during the worst of these uh, stretches, the only uh, way to see the boat safely through was to have the men pull the boats up river using uh, cordelling technique, which requires boats to be pulled with ropes by men walking on the shores. Because of all the delays, they averaged no more than 10 to 15 miles a day. So the slow process was certainly a, an additional frustration they hadn't counted on. Now, the first meeting with Native American tribes went well. These were peaceful tribes on the outskirts of the territories. In preparation for these encounters, Lewis developed an introductory ceremony of, in which, dressed in full uniform, they would inform the tri uh, tribe's chief that uh, their land now belonged to the U.S., that a man in the East, President Jefferson, was their new great father. Now, they also present the chief with a peace medal showing Jefferson on one side and two hands clasping on the other, as well as uh, some form of present. In addition, the Corps members would perform a kind of parade, a presentation of arms, during which they'd uh, march in uniform and shoot their guns. Now, I'm sure that excited the Native Americans no end. Now, Lewis had been warned of the Teton Sioux. Sioux tribe members were fiercely aggressive when it came to their territory. This is slipping teepees and honey buffalo. These small bands of South Dakota warriors were feared among the French and Canadian traders. The neighboring tribes were no match for the Sioux's aggressiveness and were often slaughtered if they interfered. The Sioux were the fierce, demanding gatekeepers of the Missouri River. In controlling the traffic on the river, they demanded large amounts of gifts from passing merchants, or they would be shot and their boat sunk. Now, when Lewis arrived, tensions were thick. Ceremony display didn't impress the Sioux, who knew the Americans sought control of the river. Sioux demanded that um, Lewis and Clark give him one of the boats. And when this was denied, the tribe held the expedition hostage for three drama-filled days. Sioux put on a war ceremony for him, complete with freshly scalped heads from the neighboring Omaha. Psychological warfare was unbelievable. And nobody in the expedition knew how to speak the Sioux language, Situation was a powder keg waiting to explode. And on the fourth day, Chief Black Buffalo of the Sioux granted Lewis and Clark's expedition safe passage in exchange for extra tobacco. Believed they had survived their first unexpected obstacle, Lewis and Clark were eager to finally be looking for something that was actually on their agenda. They had no idea what they were going to find. There were a lot of theories back east. Um, <coughs> as usual, uh, concocted by uh, what I call the ivory tower scientist, such as Jefferson's belief that uh, mastodons were wandering around the, the American West. Certainly had they found one, I'm not sure what they would have done with it. It certainly wouldn't have uh, given in to their demands that it surrendered and go back east to be presented to Jefferson. Well, as they moved forward, they discovered the Missouri and Mississippi Valley area was home to thousands of mounds in prehistory. And these mounds were of great curiosity to anti antiquarian thinkers of colonial America. And they were believed to be more than just Native American burials. So a closer investigation of these mounds was of high importance. And I've made mention in previous shows that uh, some of these mounds... Uh, were discovered to be in, uh, filled with uh, giant skeletons, uh, eight to ten feet tall, six fingers, six toes, wearing copper armor. And the, the copper uh, apparently came from uh, copper mines around the uh, Great Lakes. Well, with several men and Lewis's dog, they hiked the miles from where they set up camp on the river. It was a far hike. And it took its toll on the explorers. The heat was tremendous. The dog returned to the river and the men collapsed at the base of the mound and uh, 
what was described as dire thirst. After having something to drink, Lewis and Clark climbed 70 feet to the top of what became known as Spirit Mound, and they saw an impressive view. The entire valley plain from above was seen for the first time. They saw the wild buffalo roaming undisturbed. Now, Spirit Mound is one of the few remaining sites left standing from the original Lewis and Clark expedition. Farmers and other settlers, when they came in, uh, did much to level most of them. After Lewis and his men went back to the camp, they briefly considered hiking the lands beyond Spirit Mound, but decided the heat would make it dangerous. So they went up river the next morning and never looked back. If they had uh, gone just a little bit further, they'd have crossed paths with America's biggest pre-Columbian mystery, the Chihokia Mounds. It's a gigantic complex settlement of ancient mounds that includes Monk's Mound. The name Cahokia is attributed to an unrelated clan of Aliniwik uh, people living in the area when the first French explorers arrived in the 1600s. It was long after Cahokia had been abandoned by its original inhabitants. And the living descendants of the Cahokia people associated with the mound site are unknown. French explorers assigned the name Cahokia to the late 17th, in the late 17th century. The name stuck even though the natives claimed the mounds were much older than they were. Best known for large man-made earthen structures, the city of Cahokia was inhabited from about 700 to 1400 uh, A.D. Built by ancient peoples known casually as the Mound Builders, Cahokia's original population was thought to have been about 1,000 until about the 11th century when it expanded to tens of thousands. At its apex, estimated between 1100 and 1200 uh, A.D., the city covered nearly six square miles and hosted a population of as many as 100,000 people. Now, these ancient natives are said to have built more than 120 earthen mounds in the city. 109 of them have been recorded and 68 have been preserved within the site. Now, some are no more than a gentle rise on the land. Others reach 100 feet up into the air. Natives are said to have transported the earthen material used to build the mounds on their backs and baskets to the construction sites. More than 50 million cubic feet of earth was moved for the construction of these mounds. Well, the rapid decline in the Cahokia population said to have begun uh, sometime about 1200 A.D. By 1400, the site heralded as hosted the most magnificent pre-Columbian city north of Mexico, was empty, barren. Theories abound as to what led to this seemingly catastrophic decline in the civilization, including war, disease, drought, and ever-famous climate change. Archaeologists scratch their heads when considering the fact that there are no legends, records, or even mention of this magnificent city in the annals of other local tribes, including the Osage, the Omaha, the Ponca, and the Quapaw. The largest earthwork in, at the historic site, known as Monk's Mound, is at the center. It's about 100 feet tall. It's the largest man-made prehistoric mound in North America. It's 1,000 feet long, 800 feet wide, and composed of um, four platform terraces. Archaeologists estimate that 22 million cubic feet of earth was used to build the mound between the years 900 and 1200 A.D., since then, the mound has eroded or been damaged to the point that nobody knows how large the mound really was in the beginning. Even more curious than the existence and seemingly sudden disappearance of a vast culture is the surprising discovery of what appears to be a massive stone structure lying hidden deep below Monk's Mound. January 24, 1998, while drilling to construct a water drainage system at Monk's Mound, workers hit a 32-foot-long stone structure. According to William Woods, professor of geography and courtesy professor of anthropology at Kansas University, and this was astounding. At the time, he was an archaeologist with Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, and he led the investigation into this mystery structure. He said the stone's at least 32 feet long and one of its dimensions, buried about 40 feet below the surface of a terrace on the western side of Monk's Mound and well above the the mound's bottom. He noted that even if the structure turned out to be just a large slab of stone, it would still be a dramatic find because the nearest source of stone was more than 10 miles from Cahokia. 
which lies about 20 miles southeast of St. Louis. In fact, no stones have ever been found at the site other than those used to craft primitive tools, weapons, and artifacts. Archaeologist Andy Martigonomi Jr. and Steve Fulton were on duty at the site and discussed the situation, speculating to be a drain or even a tomb. Comparing the field of the drill with countless other operations, the real operator told him the structure seemed to be made of large stones apparently placed together deliberately deep into the western face. And this gave the archaeologist more reason to think that this might be something other than just a rock. There's a large region of stone of undetermined shape located 40 feet below one of the terrace surfaces, but still well above the base of the mound. And until then, the prevailing dogma had long been Native Americans of Belkahokia worked only with earth, never with stone, which hadn't found anywhere near the region in question. The Monk's Mound discovery directly challenged thinking at the time about the culture the Belkahokians suggested what's beneath the mound themselves may be much, much older. Discovery of the massive unidentified stone could push the dates of the construction back much further, associating Cahokia with other similar structures that range from 3,000 to 3,500 years of age. More recently, the discovery made at uh, Cahokia, February 17, 2010, of what appears to have been a Stone Age copper workshop has baffled explorers even further. About 200 yards east of Monk's Mound, an excavation revealed evidence of the only known copper workshop from the Mississippian era. This workshop is being studied in relation to a peculiarity on an engraved drinking cup made from a conch shell found at the top of the 10-foot-high mound. Some speculate the shell came from the Gulf of Mexico. It contains a symbol of an era-like logo with a circle on, in the arrowhead. And this symbol first turned up in rock shelters excavated in Wisconsin and in east-central Missouri and was dated about 1,000 A.D., more than uh, 200 years before the peak of the Cahokia era civilization. Now, the symbols on the shelter walls are similar to the shell fragments found at the, on the mound at Cahokia, and scholars now believe Cahokia may have been the center of the ancient Mississippian culture. Copper relics have been found throughout the Mississippi Mound uh, Network, but to claim they all must be related to Cahokia's, many believe, is too hasty an assumption. Could these earth-covered mounds conceal the remains of much older, forgotten ruins? Well, the truth would only be revealed when the full dig is conducted. And as it is today, less than 1% of the Cahokia mounds have been excavated. What's ironic about the copper find is that this recent excavation didn't take place at the site of the stone structure, but rather somewhere else, leading to an event um, that's even more fascinating. And while Lewis didn't get to see all of Cahokia, he and the party did wander into the mounds at Grave Creek. And after Lewis's vivid description of these mounds in his journal and his documentation of finding brass beads at the burial site, the journal ends. It remains unexplained why everything in the journals of Lewis and Clark is detailed meticulously until the topic of the mounds is mentioned. And at this point, we have a, a series of omissions and missing pages. According to Gary Moulton, more difficult to explain is Lewis's lack of journal keeping once the expedition got underway. No Lewis journals are known to exist that uh, cover the first phase of the expedition from May 14th to uh, 1804 until the group left Fort Mandan April 7th, 1805. This is the longest hiatus in Lewis's writing, and to historians, it's the most curious gap. Above the surface, scholars teach that the mounds are the works of the Native Americans. But below the surface, oh, below the surface and other tales emerging, as a glowing number of scholars come forth with evidence that points to a prehistoric civilization that predates the Native Americans. And if that has to be admitted, that's going to upend numerous laws, rules, and regulations uh, governing... Um, the Native Americans, and, and how their artifacts have to be treated. You know, during their encounter with the uh, Salish Indians, uh, September 5th, 1805, uh, while in what's today western Montana, members of the Corps of Discovery noted the natives spoke a strange language. Sergeant John Ordway uh, made the observation, these natives have a strange uh, language of any we've ever seen. 
They appeared to us as though they had an impediment in their speech or brogue on their tongue. We think that uh, maybe they're Welsh Indians. Clark noted in his journal that only the flathead or the Salish tongue was a gurgling kind of language spoken much through the the, the throat. Ordway was certain a cord discovered the legendary Welsh Indian descended from the Welsh Prince Madoc, who'd sailed to the American continent a century before Columbus. According to the story, in 1170 A.D., a Welsh prince named Madoc sailed west, far away from the disasters occurring in his homeland. Bards through the next 400 years did the same. The earliest uh, printed report of Madoc's story is David Powell's The History of Cambria, which was published in 1584. He said Madoc left the land in contention between his brethren and prepared certain ships with men and munitions and sought adventures by sea, sailing west. Came to a land unknown where he saw many strange things. Of the visions and return to this Madoc there uh, be many fables, as the common people do use in distance of uh, place and length of time, rather to augment than d- diminish. But uh, sure it is that there he was, and after he returned home and declared that pleasant and fruitful countries he had seen, his he prepared a number of ships and got with him many men and women who were desirous to live in quietness and, taking leave of his friends, took his journey westward. He lived in the country into which he came in the year 1170, left most of his people there, and returning back for more of his own nation, acquaintance, and friends to inhabit this fair, large country. Uh, good to know, and famous bard and historian of uh, Basingwork Abbey, one of the most influential proprietors of the Madoc myth. His writings are cited as crucial sources by authors such as Richard Deacon, who um, wrote the influential Madoc and the Discovery of America in 1966. This rare book builds a solid case for Madoc's voyage of discovery, despite the controversial claims that the Madoc story was invented in, after 1492, giving England a uh, claim to prior rights in the New World. Deacon's research indicates that in 1625, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote a world history that suggested a wealth prince had discovered America. Well, what if the young Prince Madoc lived on to build ancient settlements and interact with the Native Americans? The ocean current uh, naturally would have carried Madoc and his fleet into the Gulf of Mexico. And once there, he would have been attracted to the perfect harbor offered in Mobile Bay. And there's another traveler the ancient bard speaks of who sailed to American shores. It was an Irish monk named St. Brendan. He was said to, dis- to have discovered sometime between uh, 512 and 530 A.D. Uh, an island so big he failed to find the shore after 40 days of walking in a forested land full of fresh fruit and divided by a river to ride across. His tales, first published in Latin, were, were fanciful bestsellers that... Uh, read more like a great entertainment than actual reality. St. Brendan's exploits were uh, quickly synchronized with folklore, and he joined Madoc as another mythological hero. In 1977, historian and author and ship captain uh, Tim Severin proved a voyage from Ireland to North American mainland was actually possible. And against all odds, Severin and his robust crew built a leather boat exactly like those used in the days of St. Brendan and sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. And they landed safely in Newfoundland. And there have been ancient fortifications found along the Mississippi River with architecture unlike any previously discovered in the region. In a 1781 letter, Governor John Seaver of Tennessee recounts a conversation he had with a 90 year old Cherokee chief. Seaver asked the chief about the people who left the fortifications in his country. The chief told him white people had crossed the Great Water and built them. This letter can be found in the files of the Georgia Historical Commission. And there are three major forts that stand out against the typical native settlements found along the Mississippi. And all three of these forts share striking similarities to ancient Welsh fortifications. The fort at Chatworth, Georgia, is virtually identical in layout and method of construction to the young castle in Wales, the supposed birthplace of Prince Madoc. As forts were built and territory expanded upriver, a clash with hostile native tribes was inevitable. It's presumed this hostility forced him to build a defensive stronghold complete with massive walls 800 feet long. And the wall, another anomaly of southeastern archaeology, uh, long predates the Cherokees found living there in the 1700s. 
Cherokee legends call the wall builders moon-eyed people who are said to have had fair skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. You know, throughout the centuries, scholars and historians have argued for and against the Madoc story. November 8, 1953, a memorial tablet was erected at Fort Morgan, Mobile Bay, Alabama, by the Virginia Cavalier Chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Written on that tablet was in memory of Prince Madoc, a Welsh explorer who landed on the shores of Mobile Bay in 1170 and left behind with the Indians the Welsh language. Well, the memorial, subject to much controversy, was taken down after a hurricane in 1970. Despite resolutions being passed and supported the governor to restore the plaque, this part of American history is nearly forgotten, covered up, and ignored. More than any other tribe, the Mandan of the Northern Plains showed uh, signs of contact with wealth explorers such as Madoc. There were a small, peaceful tribe that lived at the conver- uh, convergence of the Knife and Missouri Rivers near Bismarck, North Dakota. They were known for their philanthropy, which was the outward expression of a deep-seated uh, ethical philosophy. They hated the northern, they, excuse me, they shared the northern plains with tribes such as the, the Datsa, the Arakara, the Assiniboine, the Dakota, and the Chippewa. The lands they collectively inhabited were largely similar and had few natural barriers to prevent the mingling of the people. And because of this, the various tribes had many traits in common, and they all depended on buffalo for food, clothing, and other necessities. But of these tribes, only the Mandan and the Hidatsu lived in earth lodge villages when they were first visited by white people in what's now North Dakota. The Mandan were further differentiated from their native counterparts in the way they set up their villages, their spiritual beliefs, and their physical appearance. These differences have led many scholars to suggest the Mandan derived from different bloodlines and their Northern Plains counterparts. And despite a widespread absence of facts about the Mandan in history books, there's more than enough documentation uh, elsewhere to suggest this tribe originated in Europe. Well, the Mandan lived in earth lodge homes rather than teepees, and unlike the settlements of other tribal nations, theirs were permanent. The women of the Mandan tribe tended their gardens, prepared food, and maintained the lodges while the men spent their time hunting or seeking spiritual knowledge. Their village was strategically located on bluffs overlooking the river. This position provided maximum defense and limited any attacks to one land approach. These villages were the center of the social, spiritual, and economic lives of the Mandan. And Mandan earth lodges were unlike those built by other tribes. These lodges were large, uh, rectangular and circular huts, uh, 15 feet high and 40 to 60 feet in diameter. Each hut had a vestibule entrance and a square hole on top that served as a smokestack. Each earth lodge housed uh, 10 to 30 people and their belongings. Villages contained 50 to 100 earth lodges. The frame of an earth lodge was made from tree trunks, which were covered with crisscross willow branches. And over the branches, they placed dirt and sod. This type of construction made the roofs strong, strong enough to support people on nights of good weather. And the floors of earth lodges were made of dirt, and the middle was dug out to make a bench around the outer edge of the lodge. Now, surrounding the village were stockades of poles as tall as six feet high to prevent enemy attacks. And in the middle of a Mandan village was a large circular open space that was called the Central Plaza. In the middle of the plaza was a sacred cedar post that represented the Ark of the First Man or Lone Man, a revered hero from their ancient legends. Then at the end of the plaza was the medicine or ceremonial lodge. The arrangement of the lodges around the Central Plaza represented the social status of each family. The higher in status villagers were, the more they were more duties were required of them, therefore they were housed closer to the uh, ceremonial lodge. strange feature of the Mandan villages that uh, didn't correspond with the behavior of the native tribes was that the Mandan homes were arranged along what appeared to be streets. The Nazis and the peaceful tribe were the only other native people who built earthen huts, and they learned this practice from the Mandan. The rich floodplain fields that surrounded the villages made agriculture the basis of the Mandan existence. Mandan women were responsible for sustaining the gardens within the village. The agricultural year began in April when the women would clear the fields by burning the old stalks and weeds of the previous year's crops. Around May, they planted rolls of corn and beans, tobacco, pumpkin, sunflowers, and squash to maximize exposure to sunlight. 
To tend her gardens, women used tools such as digging sticks and rakes and hoes made from wood or buffalo bone. To protect their garden from natural predators like prairie dogs, birds, and rodents, they constructed scarecrows out of buffalo hide. Men and women who performed daily cleansing rituals before entering their gardens by rubbing sage over their bodies. They believed this would protect their crops from worms and disease. Well, harvesting began in late August with squash and ended in October with corn. And after the harvest, women would drive the corn in scaffolds built above the ground. And after the corn was dry, women picked the seeds that they wanted to use for next year's crop. And the rest were buried when, with uh, other dried garden items in underground storage pits to preserve them through the winter. These garrets took days to build and were deep enough to require a ladder to enter. When finished, they were lined with grass and buffalo hide. The dried vegetables and seeds were placed inside. The gardens were then uh, covered with a uh, layer of buffalo hide, a layer of dirt, and then grass was put on top. In comparison to the traditions of the other native tribes, this techniques impressed white traders and scouts as uncharacteristically advanced. But the most mysterious of the Mandan characteristics was their physical appearance. Unlike other natives encountered by other explorers, the Mandan were purported to have mixed complexions that varied from White to almost white, blue and green eyes, and reddish or blondish hair. All these characteristics suggest that European genetics were at some point introduced into tribal bloodlines. Now, some theories named Paul Knutson, a 13th century Norwegian, as a possible candidate for having introduced a Nordic-European genetic strain and Christian cultural nuances to the American Midwest. This story arose because the Mandan built their settlements using a Architectural type uh, style unknown anywhere else in North America, but common in medieval Norway. In a letter dated January 22, 1804, to Meriwether Lewis, President Jefferson specifically requests the expedition to make contact with and verify rumors of the existence of a white, blue-eyed tribe of natives that uh, had come to be referred to as the Welsh Indians because of the similarities between the language of the Mandans and the language of the Welsh. The original source of these claims can't be pinpointed with any accuracy, but they had circulated enough that the issue became a, a matter of great importance to government officials. Documented accounts began in 1738 when Pierre Gautier de Virenis, Sir de la uh, took an expedition from his forts in present-day Manitoba to what's now North Dakota in search of this mysterious tribe. During this expedition near the banks of the Missouri River, the Rarendry found a stone cairn with a small stone tablet inscribed on both sides with unfamiliar, unfamiliar characters. Jesuit scholars in Quebec later described the writing on the stone as Tatarian, a runic script similar to North runes. Professor Peter Kahn of the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences interviewed Captain de, uh, de Dry about this discovery in Quebec. The tablet was supposedly uh, shipped to France, stored with other archaeological artifacts in a church at Rouen, and buried into tons of rubble by direct bomb hit during World War II. Verendry located the Mandan village in what's now McLean County, North Dakota, between Minot and Bismarck. Large, well-fortified town with 130 houses laid out in streets. Fort's palisades and ramparts were not uh, European battlements with a uh, dry moat around the perimeter. And more remarkably, Verendry noted many of the Mandans had light skin, fair hair, and European features. He described their houses as large and spacious, very clean, with separate rooms, which was totally unlike any other Native American tribe. On August 24, 1784, the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser reported a new nation of white people had been discovered about 2,000 miles to the west of the Appalachians, acquainted with the principles of the Christian religion and extremely courteous and civilized. Rumors spread, and somewhere along the line, a possible connection to Welsh ancestry was suggested. When 1796, Welsh explorer John Evans set out in search of the Mandan, hoping to find proof their language contained Welsh words. He spent the winter of 1796-97 with a tribe of Mandan and found no evidence of any Welsh influence. In July 1797, he wrote a letter to Dr. Samuel Jones that said, uh, having explored and charted the Missouri for 1,800 miles and my communication with the Indians, uh, the side of the Pacific Ocean from 35 to 49 degrees of latitude, I'm able to inform you there is no such people as the Welsh Indians. 
Emma's conclusions were directly contradicted by Lewis and Clark in 1804 and again in 1832 by George Catlin, a lawyer, frontiersman, and pictorial historian who spent several months living among the Mandans. It was through uh, Catlin's accounts and art that it has proved beyond what many would doubt that the Mandan indeed were a race descended from European ancestry. Some speculate Evans may not have uh, reached an actual Mandan settlement, claiming that the evidence uh, provided by Catlin is indisputable. When the Corps of Discovery entered the world of the Mandan in October 1804, the tribal leaders were receptive to the goals of the expedition. Lewis and Clark found the Mandan people to be extremely hospitable, and the Corps of Discovery prepared to winter on the Missouri River, building a log fort made of cottonwood tree trunks. The men in the expedition cut the lumber from the riverbank, building a triangular fort facing the river just downstream from nearby Mandan and Hidatsu, uh Villages, they called it Fort Mandan. And on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow, and we're going to talk more about some of the discoveries that history doesn't talk about made by the Corps of Discovery. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.